Hello everyone and welcome. Today I'm in conversation with two close friends of mine, Peter Cooper and Ben Eagle. They're both members of the committee of Focus on Nature, the Youth Nature Network, which is how we became friends. But they're also amazing young leaders in the conservation sector in their own right. Ben is a young farmer and conservationist whose blog, thinkingcountry.com, was shortlisted at last year's National Blog Awards. Ben also runs his own podcast called Meet the Farmer. Pete is a nature writer and conservationist, a specialist in mammals, and you can find his writing at petecooperwildlife.com, and he's also recently begun his own podcast about rewilding. These two were staying with me a few nights ago, and so we decided to try a new feature that I'm loosely calling Beer and Biodiversity. In our conversation, we cover a huge range of topics, including the need for young farmers and young, young conservationists to work together more, the recent news on the dramatic decline in insects, and the joys of running your own podcast. We hope you enjoy this as much as we did, and I'm sorry if the conversation gets slightly more random and slurred as the night and the beer draw on. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of people saving nature. We're a part of Wild Voices Media, a global production team bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. Find out more about us at wildvoicesproject.org, and learn more about the global community at wild-voices.org. Welcome to a new segment on Wild Voices Project, which I'm calling Beers and Biodiversity. Um, and I'm joined this evening for a kind of new uh, new thing which I'm trying, which is a conversational approach to Wild Voices Projects by two esteemed gentlemen and friends of mine who I think can uh, can probably introduce themselves. Let's, uh, let's start on my left with Pete. Right, so I'm Pete Cooper. I'm currently working as the Harvest Mouse Project Officer part-time for the Devon Mammal Group, which basically involves assessing the status and the distribution of the Harvest Mouse across Devon, which... It's a big place, um, but you know we got, we're getting some volunteer effort in, so we should get it done. Hopefully, all in good time. Um, I recently uh, graduated as a as a postgraduate student in biodiversity and conservation MSc from the University of Exeter Penrith campus, where I'd also been an undergrad for three years prior to that because Cornwall's amazing and you don't want to leave, um, and it's also a very good university and also gives you the skills to be a conservationist. But you get to go and you know, be in the sea at the same time and see barking sharks. Um, but yeah, I, I've been a, a naturalist all my life, um, to use that old cliche. Um, but literally from, you know, from the day I could walk and talk, um, my first words are trees, uh, followed by bracken and gorse after that. <laughs> and, um, you know, even, you know, I came from a quite big family. So with four brothers and parents and relatives and the rest of it, I actually referred to my relatives as animals rather than their own people names. Which led to some confusion as to why, you know, Dad was a parrot and Charlie was a hippo, for example. Because uh, none of them resembled parrots or hippos. Although the, uh, my brother Jeff's girlfriend uh, was a snow leopard. I think she rather admired that. But yeah, and it was, you know, nature and animals are something that's always been a part of me since. You know, I've grown up with the woods uh, right outside my garden gate. Um, and I've, you know, always been going on to the zoos, which has been a big part of what I do, actually. Um, and, you know, certainly as a teenager, I can remember that reaching a horrible point when you're about sort of 15 and everyone else sort of seems to sort of establish who they are as people and I kind of you know I kind of lost a lot of trust in a lot of people and actually my refuge then was in you know seeing the local barn owls just down the road or watching the foxes playing by their earth or the 
and the buzzards in the woods, the badgers, um, and in the local little youth group down at my local zoo. So nature was sort of salvation, I think, as a young person. Um, and it was just an absolute godsend to meet other young people who were interested in it later on via social media. Um, so yeah, I've always wanted to work in conservation and I'm hopefully starting that now. Um, and yeah, my specialization, I guess, would be in reintroductions, ecological restoration, um, to use the R word, rewilding, essentially, it seems to be a lot where it's going. I've done a lot of work with uh, beaver introduction already in the southwest. Uh, can can you tell us about the show and tell item you've brought? Oh, the show and tell, the show and tell, which <laughs> is tell for the time being for the podcast. It's, but, it's yes. all very exciting. I'll share a photo so, of it on Twitter. Uh, oh, excellent. It is an item of wood, of bark, that is a, you know, a piece of a log that's been completely stripped by a beaver and gnawed at either end. So you actually still see the teeth marks in it as well. And that is from one of the, uh, the Devon beaver populations, actually. So that is a British beaver stick, basically. One of the first in... Well, not one of the first... Well, one well, of the first one, in One of the first centuries. in a recent cohort, yes, yeah. of uh, about 500 years as well. Yeah. And, and the beaver is symptomatic of... Or not symptomatic, that's the wrong word. Emblematic of restoring nature to a wider scale. Um, it's a species that is a process, not a species in itself. What the beaver does for um, streams in the upstream catchment when they're small and barely trickles... They create these wonderful ponds, they create these wonderful dams and canals. And if you ever visit a beaver site, you just find the life explodes around you. Um, it is magical. Uh, and actually, coming on to that, I mean, I think the reason I absolutely love nature and always have done is because it's the closest thing in life to magic. Um, so if, by the same extent that beavers bring that magic back in the life they recreate in the wetlands, I think it's one of the key reasons that, you know, for all the difficulties and the conflicts um, and the hard work that doing such a process as beaver introduction might endure makes it all the more worth it. And there is the added benefit as well if, you know, you like people as well as animals, that these things do actually um, hold back flood water, they store carbon, they can hold back the sediment and pollution and all the rest of it. So they really are magic animals, emblematic of the magic of nature. It's, it's really interesting you use the word magic. So the second podcast that I did for Wild Voices Project was with a, a mutual friend of ours, Tiffany, and I titled mm. the podcast The Magic of Animals because uh, I need to go back and listen to remind myself exactly, but so much of what Tiff spoke about was about how for her and in her writing and in her just in growing up as well, there was so much overlap between her imagination and kind mm. of imagining magic things happening. Oh, completely, completely. And wildlife itself and nature yeah. as well. Yeah. So I think the two themes really intersect. And I've got another friend who's who's writing at the moment about, you know, getting out into the outdoors with her young children and creating worlds of magic through being in the outdoors and nature. Mm. Oh, totally, totally. And I mean, I remember doing that difficult phase when I was, you know, a teenager and, you know, beginning to lose trust and, and faith in people as a whole. Um, just wanting to escape and, you know, shapeshift as all the characters in fantasy stories do into the buzzard that flew around the field, into that fox that was running through the woods, into the otter and the river test. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, a, you know, that's desire to sort of become part of the magical world of nature is emblematic of the boundaries between sort of fantasy and reality. And nature is our sort of avenue onto that, basically. Mm. Um, certainly, if I get, do get around to it, I'd love to write a book with you know, shape-shifting characters and the rest of it, because it's the, the closest way, as a fiction writer, you can actually appreciate the natural world, too. And as a naturalist, you know, that's the closest thing you can get to in reality, is understanding and tracking the animals. Um, so I mean, my speciality of the group is with mammals and reptiles and things. And I think in a very broad sense, people are naturalists, because there's two different elements of nature that appeal to them. It's the familiar and the mysterious. 
And I think the familiar is, you know, the birds in your garden feeder, it's the butterflies going the the garden and all the rest of it. And I absolutely love that. You know, I think that's wonderful, and, you know, that nature is part of your life. But it has always been the mysterious, the, the enigmatic side of nature that's appealed to me. So, you know, that's why my favourite birds are things like the nightjar and the woodcocks that we don't necessarily see. Um, and I think, yeah, that being a naturalist, being a mammal naturalist particularly, means you can access that world closer. You can, in your mind, shapeshift into the animal by following its tracks and seeing where it's been. Yeah. So I, I completely agree with that sentiment. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, Ben, we'll turn to you. Ben has uh, kindly foraged some beer for us, which I'm sure, again, <laughs> Tiffany Francis, who's a who's a forager by trade, would be would be uh, impressed by. And Ben has also brought along some copious notes for this podcast, which is better than I've done. Um, <laughs> So, um, Ben, let's turn to you, and why don't you introduce yourself and say a little bit about what you do. Of course, well, first Matt, it's a a privilege to be on this (laughs) podcast, I must say. Um, So I'm Ben Eagle. Um, I'm an environmental and agricultural writer. That's part of my life. Um, And then the other part of my life uh, is spent co-managing our family farm um, on the North Essex coast, um, which I've been back on the farm now for goodness about uh seven eight months or so now following several years of going about doing this that and the other um and eventually seeing my sense and coming back to the place that i love which is the essex coast the essex marshes um which i think uh, i won't say very much about now because i'm sure we'll um go into that later but that's it's a place that has had a huge influence on my way of thinking and uh, my, my, my thought processes um, about everything that I do. So in terms of my interest in the natural world, I think it's very much to do with place. I think uh, place-based uh, and that idea of retreat that we have in the East, um, it's a very volatile landscape. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a landscape that is constantly changing. Um, and that's partly what I love about it but the wildlife as well is always changing and it's a very seasonal landscape which sort of set me up for, 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 for the way that I, I saw nature as well um, so and I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently actually in terms of why 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 my interest in wildlife and, and in the natural world has become more intense as I as I'm as I'm sort of moving through my life, usually, and I'm, I'm sure it's still, I'm a great believer that all kids are inherently fantastic advocates of the natural world, mm. and a lot of us lose that during our teenage years. But then some of us find that and find that intensely, um, and that's what I'm still going through that process. I think now um, rediscovering places, uh, but places, yeah, places are very important to me. Um, as our as our people as well, I think ref- removing people from the natural world and from from the sort of context of wildlife, I think is impossible, and that's mm. it's something that has become very very true for me. Specifically with with farmers, and I think mm. the the farming community I've I've found I suppose probably almost certainly because of my background, um, but I found found a real connection with speaking to farmers about their connection with the natural world and connection with wildlife um and again that sense of place mm. and that connection that farmers have with place and their local wildlife um so i'm still very much at the beginning of a discovery what it would a journey what whatever whatever you want to call it um in terms of understanding i suppose 
our relationship with places and, and, and with the natural world. And you've taken on a role at your family farm that kind of brings those two interests together, haven't you? Yeah, definitely so. I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky um, to uh, be be part of... Uh, a, I'm, I'm working with my family, who I absolutely adore, um, and we get on really well and, and, and sort of planning a family business. I, I really enjoy the challenge of that. But also it's, it's enabled me to use my experience that I previously had with National Trust and, and Essex Wildlife Trust as well um, to use that within our own family context. Um, so uh, this year, uh, I'm specifically at the moment um, planning our countryside stewardship scheme to, as long as it goes through, fingers crossed, uh, will begin in January of next year. Um, and certainly on our farm, we've swung um, the business so that uh, about 60% of the land is down to stewardship schemes of, of some kind. Which means um, that they're managed in some way for environmental benefit indeed, as well yeah. as for, yeah, as for yeah, kind of commercial benefit, right? Completely, yeah. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that um, of, of the land sharing element, um, which is something that we might talk about a bit later, but this idea that food production and environmental conservation can work hand in hand. Mm. So it's it's a real challenge that I've I've really <clears throat> jumped at to be able to shape what will be the next five years, because these are five-year agreements, of what the next five years on the farm in terms of habitat management is, is going to be like. Um, it's going to be a challenge. And again, because we live in a fairly populated area, um, there are a few, very few areas of Essex that aren't populated, it means working with local people. But again, I, I actually relish that, and, and I'm a big believer that it's our, it's our local wildlife, it's our local heritage as well, mm. and we should manage that together. Mm. So that's, uh, it's going to be an interesting challenge. And Pete and I both had the opportunity to visit your family farm just a few months mm. ago, didn't we? And yeah. see, you know, see for ourselves the, the yeah. kind of coming together of wildlife and of farming and also the setting landscape within which it sits, which, as you say, is, um, yeah, the east of England, I think, yeah. is quite a, I suppose, transitional and active landscape. I forget the word that you used a few moments ago, but yeah, it's a... It's quite unique, I think. Yeah, completely. I mean, you you know that well as well, having having lived there. Um, but it is it's this, it's this sort of transitional state. It's very mm. dynamic. It's constantly changing. Um, and that also, I think, has a real and it's something again something I've been noticing more. It has a real effect on the people who live there. Mm. Mm. Think about it, or think about it, or not think about it. It's 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 that it really really does. Mm. And talking about transitions, it will be as you'll be all too well aware very interesting to see where things go now that we are progressing with Brexit and whether Michael Gove's words hold true about subsidies being redirected mm-hmm. into more environmental benefit if we're going to get this uh, new environment bill essentially for well agriculture bill with a mm-hmm. heavy environmental aspect to it you know whether it will then become more of an essentiality for farmers to uh, bring that wildlife in the land mm-hmm. rather than like an optional thing as it is at the moment well he said so, he said some mixed things yesterday to right. um to the Environmental Audit Committee. So he said that um, there'll be a government consultation on a new body to hold government to account on its environmental record. But he also said that he didn't feel there was a need to carry over things like the precautionary principle from Mm. EU law to UK law. So I think the signals at the moment are a bit mixed. Some are positive and some are... Some are more negative, but maybe we can maybe we can come back to that. We've got we've got quite a lot of stuff to work through. Um, and this podcast is slightly opportunistic because the reason that Pete and Ben are here is because of an event tomorrow, which links very much to what Ben was just talking about, which 
maybe you could just say a little bit more about what what's happening tomorrow. Yeah, of course. So tomorrow, uh, we will all be at uh, the Allerton Project in Leicestershire um, for the an event that it's been it's been in the making for about mm. eighteen months or so from mm. seed of idea. Uh, to fruition tomorrow. It's called Future Wildlife, Future Farming. And it's the first event, uh, first joint event of a focus on, nat- on nature, AFON, and the National Federation of Young Farmers Clubs, Young Farmers. And so both organisations are coming together really to think about the future of wildlife on in a farmed landscape. Um, we've got a great panel of speakers. Um, Rob York uh, will be chairing the day, Emily Norton, Ed Barker, Quentin Clark and David Goodwin. And But I think one of the things that most things that I'm looking forward to really is just getting all these, all these everyone's under 30, mm-hmm. a load of under 30 year olds just coming and talking together and starting to build those connections with each other. Um, certainly AFON, a focus on nature, which Pete and I and you, a big part of your life, <laughs> yeah. have been involved for. Uh, for me, one of the best things about it is has been meeting like-minded people mm-hmm. and, and building those connections mm. of people that, yeah, we're all friends, but also, in our various ways, we'll all be working together in, in some ways in the future as well. Yeah. And I think if you can build those connections together, then you're going to be... it's. All the, all the more important for the future mm. and so if we can lift that again to a farming context as well then yeah it's, mm. it's the next stage so yeah. i suppose two questions one why why is it important that farmers and conservationists speak to each other that maybe sounds like an obvious mm-hmm. question but let's let's discuss it anyway and we've already hinted at it a little bit and two why is it important that young conservationists and young farmers do that mm. and why hasn't it happened before mm. Well, I suppose when you consider that 72% of land cover of the UK is farmland. Mm-hmm. And essentially what you've got is if you can engage... Imagine if, you, imagine if you can engage all the farmers in the UK, whether that was somehow through the voluntary schemes or if there was a subsidy that made environmental benefit and essentiality came forward. What you then have is essentially nature reserve managers for 72% of land in the UK. Mm-hmm. And that's a phenomenal, phenomenal amount. And obviously you only have to look at the wildlife that's been lost, obviously the post-industrial um, intensification of agriculture is one of the big key points there. Um, so, you know, as a, as, a, as a case study, we can look at the curlew and a lot of the work's put into curlew declines because as soon as farming practices changed around the 1960s, that's when you started to see curlew disappearing from the lowlands. Um, but then you go further than that and then you look at how farming practices changed just as we got to the 1940s when corncrakes were a very common part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now you'll see very few um, nature conservation initiatives for corncrake because the generation who can remember them have all died out now or are dying out. Um, so, you know, we need to think further and further back as well, you know. Think about how the landscape would have been 100 years ago, 200 years ago, in a landscape that was still predominantly farmed but was still far, far richer as well. Mm. So we've got to really try and establish that, you know, we've got a good baseline for, you know, good ecology we can have here in this day and age. And the people who deliver it are the farming community. So this kind of, this supports what you referred to, Ben, which is the land sharing idea, which is that you can have land that's managed for food, um, but that also shares that same space with wildlife, which is opposed to the idea of land sparing, which is that farming is too intensive for wildlife. So you set aside some land for farming, and then you have completely separate areas which are perfectly managed for for wildlife and the I suppose the 
the onus of tomorrow is that you can have those two things, as you say, go hand in hand, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a space for both, and I think mm. that's always the way. There definitely has to be. We mm. have to continue, I think, to build areas, reserves that are set aside, areas of land that are set aside completely for mm. wildlife and yeah. for the purpose of that. But I think also um, we have to... It's it's a different mindset. It's it, It's farming... With wildlife in mind, as opposed mm. to farming to get to have the yeah, absolutely to be looking at uh, for yields to be your number one priority, which for most farmers are in essence farmers are food producers, and mm. I think that's what we mustn't forget. That yeah, that is that is the main purpose. And with yeah. them, but with, also, with, with farmers facing so much economic uncertainty because of Brexit, how do you um, make these conservation and wildlife issues? relevant when you know probably now more than ever or at least now more than at any time in the post second world war period they're thinking and possibly fearing about you know profit margins and mm. keeping things going commercially yeah i mean certainly in many ways farming needs nature um and and nature needs farming a lot of species um are completely reliant on uh farming practices mm. um so if we look at core species um, that are uh, so-called farmland and wildlife species or, or farm and priority species. Um, yes, we've had huge plummets in population. Look at skylight population, look at grey partridge mm. um, into just in terms of birds. And then we, if we even get on, well, I'm sure we'll talk about the invertebrate situation as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll come, come to that later. Um, but I think it's, it, a lot of it is down to mindset. Yeah. Um, and... The fact that farmers as farmers as conservationists, um, if you think of your, your conservationist mindset and your food producer mindset, most farmers want to bring both together, um, but there's A, a question of time, mm. there's B, a matter of resources, mm. um, and C, as you mentioned as well, the, the amount and number of pressures are mm. immense. Um, and so in terms of expectation, if we, the public want our farmers to uh, boost biodiversity, to improve the state of nature generally, we are going to have to support them, um, which is why I'm a big believer in that once we go through uh, a, a British um, so-called, you know, perhaps a British agricultural policy reform period, uh, I, think, I think we would be mad to lose that element of mm. support. Mm. Um, and certainly the work I do, so going back to the harvest mouse, which is a species, it's in its name that it was a species reliant on farming more than anything else. You know, it comes from the days where you'd be bringing the ricks of corn in the day and it would literally be moving with the amount of small animals, small harvest mice that are inside it. And, you know, one, when I sort of arrived on this job, one of the key things I looking at was, right, which Devon Wildlife Reserves could have it, which um, RTB Reserves could have it. But I think, if anything, my priorities were to actually engage the farming groups first and foremost, you know, to go to, you know, uh, Farming Wildlife Advisory Group Southwest, to go to the Torridge Headwaters Farming Group, things like that, because I think a lot of the time it's actually a key case, a lot of farmers don't know what's going on with what's on, with what's on their land. Um, there is a sense where you kind of go too far, if you have too many naturalists saying, oh, you should have this, you should have that, and all that, it can be a bit of an overloading process. Mm. But if there are sort of key species you can use, so the harvest mice be an example of that, it's charismatic um 
It's very cute, basically. It's cute, basically. I'm following Chris Packer's dick to me and avoiding the cute word. Uh, it's a cute animal, basically. You know, you, you can show. I mean, I, you know, my, the whole reason I, I keep captive harvest mice is to use them for engagement because once you see a harvest mouse, your heart melts. And basically, if harvest mice, all you need to do is maintain just those really nice um, beetle banks, those nice set aside bits of pieces on the land. When we're at Lollington tomorrow, actually, they were exemplar in demonstrating um, harvest mice in beetle banks. They've had huge numbers of harvest mice over there. Um, and actually, you know, obviously the name harvest mice comes from the fact they were in the harvest. And it's assumed that nowadays they won't be there because of intensification or the rest of it. But I think, you know, thinking about it, you know, it's a, it's a slightly um, objective point of view here. But I suspect it was, again, a similar case to the corn crake, whereby it's actually just management practice, the way it's, the crop is sown, that has led to the fact that you don't see the mice within the crop itself nowadays and I think if you were to you know mow from the centre out outwards rather than go right from the edge of the field as, forwards as people have started doing with corn crake in order to protect exactly them. the same thing so the corn crake can escape out so can the yeah. harvest mice I think you'd see a lot more harvest mice in farmland so you know you, you don't have to necessarily bombard farmers with this species and that species and this hot this little tiny spider and this tiny aphids to which won't engage, it would just sort of tell them to sort of bugger off, basically, because you're just another conservationist telling them what to do. But just sort of, certainly, you know, with my small, limited role, one key species, which can have a big effect on how you think about the land, and what you think could be there, mm. can have a big effect. And I'd say, obviously, the harvest mouse isn't going to change fine policy um, in all of Devon, let alone all of the UK. But so small steps building up to a wider appreciation. If we can, if you know, I mean, because even within conservation, if I'm doing this, talking to farmers, if more conservationists do that, people are still, you know, the conservation bodies are, are very much still in the bubbles. They're talking to other conservationists and not the farmers. You know, they're working within the reserves they've got. Get out there, talk to the, the farming bodies, because you'll see far more of a difference um, in species and habitat trends, I think, if we just work together far more often. Is that your experience that? you know, uh, species like harvest mouse can be a kind of hook in a conversation with a farmer or for, for driving change and that you don't need to, you know, get into lots of ecological detail necessarily. I think if I'm absolutely completely honest, um, I think there are... Farmers aren't fools. <laughs> mm. um, and if anyone, farmers are the first person to pick up if, they're talk- if you're talking to them in a way um, that isn't yeah, it's, it's wasting their time basically mm. um but certainly on every farm throughout the uk there is a species or a collection of species that the farmer will see on a day-to-day mm. basis yeah and they will build that connection with them um and they'll just they'll just know because they're just living with it um it's it's, it's like anything is yeah the more you the more you yeah, more more connection you have with something um, the more you recognise when when that is changing. But I think the way to do it is definitely to talk their own language um, mm. and to do it in a way um, that helps their overall business. I think because at the end of the day, a farm is a business, but the, the aim of that business is depending on whether you're on uh, a short-term tenancy or whether you're on, uh, whether you own the land itself invariably you're looking for continuity and longevity um you're not necessarily looking to make a quick buck so it's not necessarily about money but you do have to pay the rent or you do have to yeah you have you're having to um uh continue to, to the following year so i think it's yeah picking up on 
picking up on species is is a po- is a positive way of doing it, but I think it has to be a way that works in the overall whole. Mm. Um, so currently, uh, to use our example at the moment, there it is incredibly easy um, using the either the environmental stewardship high tier um, mid tier uh, countryside stewardship schemes. It's very easy to overcomplicate it. Mm. Um, I've come very close. Um, I've uh, several several occasions this year to think, what on earth are we doing? Um, because it is, yeah, it mm. is. It there are many loopholes to go through, and there are many ways of doing it. Um, the what, great... what do you mean? Sorry, what do you mean by that? So you mean it's when you say thinking, what are we doing? Mm. You mean is this worth it? Yeah, I mean because of the amount of paperwork and kind of hoops you have to jump through. I think so. I think so. I mean, on our farm, um, conservation and and and. Uh, and our local wildlife is a priority yeah. for the farm mm. as a whole. Therefore, we will go. Yeah, we will go through this scheme um, regardless. But there is a real danger, I think, if we overcomplicate um, mm. the system generally, that we will put a lot of people off. Yeah. And mm. on the grand scheme, in the grand scheme of things, um, we will lose out as as a country mm. and as conservationists. Well, it's a similar sort of story, I think, to what I mentioned when. You, know, you can just get any old ecologist going over and say you should have this species and that species and this and that and the rest of it and essentially too much advice can just you know, shut off barriers like yeah. right you know I'm just getting confused here and as soon as you start getting into the scientific language over the complicated language and schemes this and priority species that and blah blah blah, blah mm. you know if, you, if you're say if you're a farmer that's struggling a bit of science to sort of you know make enough money um, you know selling the crop like why 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 would you Engage with this strange person who's talking about things yeah. you've never heard of before. But at the same time, in my experience, there yeah. are lots and lots of brilliant advisors from WAG mm. to Frag, Frag, Frag Wildlife Trust advisors, yeah, yeah. RSBB yeah. advisors, um, who are really, really good at yeah. building that personal relationship with mm. individual farmers. And I think once once you get to know someone, I mm. think it does work like that. And I think yeah. it has to work on an individual to individual yeah, it comes basis. Comes trust, basically. Yeah, key, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay, I want to move us on because we've got quite a lot to get through. But um, if people are interested in finding out, kind of the outcomes and the discussions that are had at tomorrow's event, how can they do that? Will there be a blog, for example, or? Uh, certainly, uh, I will blog about it on okay. my blog, thinkingcountry.com. Which, okay, thinkingcountry.com. Thank you very much. And your focus on nature blog might have something and as well. There will definitely be something on peakofwildlife.com. There we go. You're not just put that through. But we are certainly, we're trying to, tomorrow, obviously this will be coming out further in the future, um, but we'll be using uh, the hashtag FarmEnviro30, um, which uh, is, doesn't exactly ring off the tongue. No, it's catchy, <laughs> <isn't> it? <Yeah. laughs> there are catchy, <laughs> of, yeah. But we'll be using that uh, to really start these conversations between young farmers and, and young conservationists. Okay, great. So I want to move on to, we've already kind of covered a little bit what you're both working on. Um one of the areas that I wanted to touch on, well, I think it was actually your idea, Ben, to touch on this, was that all three of us have gone down the route of podcasts. Um, Mm. You're obviously listening to the Wild Voices Project, but Pete's embarking on his own rewilding podcast project, Mm -hmm. and Ben has, uh, for a number of months, if not longer, um, been running the Meet the Farmer podcast. So I suppose I just thought it would be interesting to explore a little bit 
why all three of us have ended up going down this route yeah. of mm. podcasts yeah. alongside blogging and the other things that we do, but why, you know, I'd be interested in hearing from both of you, well, please, please do tell people where they can listen to your podcast and what mm. it's about, but also why you've gone down the route of audio recording as a format for, you know, expressing your interest in nature and wildlife. Mm. Pete, do you want to kick off? Yeah, so I've, at time of uh, recording, I've literally just started my podcast uh, what is rewilding anyway? Uh, currently on one episode, but you know, more in the can. Um, to be found on my blog again, PeteCooperWildlife dot com, and uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully on iTunes soon. Uh, and I think the key thing to a podcast, which I think is, you know we're seeing as we're discussing this right now, is it, it allows a far more natural flow of conversation and far more to be conveyed than you could ever do while writing in sort of relatively structured yeah. format. You get for that. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, this, this topic I'm looking at here, it's not necessarily let's talk about rewilding. It's like, what is the definition of it? So for anyone who's been following the whole rewilding uh, fraternity in the UK, one of the key problems that's coming up at the moment is actually trying to pinpoint what it exactly it means as a conservation policy, or even if it is a conservation policy, uh, is actually proving very difficult. Like, how far do you go rewilding? What do you call rewilding? You know, does it have to involve species reintroduction? Does it have to involve huge vast tracts of land and all the rest of it and you know I've talked a bit about sort of breaking down barriers a little bit breaking outside the bubble and this podcast is interviewing not just people who are already doing it and not keen on rewilding but those who are slightly more middle ground and also um, people who are also opposition to it who are critics of rewilding of which there are certainly plenty so yeah it's to find that far more natural flow in what is a very tricky very heated subject which even you know rewilders themselves can argue amongst themselves in the group because they're so different on what it is as a policy um and also as you've said as you said earlier this evening by recording in the locations that you're talking about capturing the sound of the wildlife that you're discussing completely yeah so you don't get with writing oh no 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 no. so all all the podcasts i will where possible try and do within the field uh, at a relevant site so you can get a sense of place and you know you can find an item potentially and extrapolate from there basically so I think yeah I think of nature as well having that sense of place is so important and it's why I get incredibly incredibly frustrated anytime there's a slight bit of office work related to my job or anything else related nature related because you should be out there you know you just feel so isolated from it there's plenty of it and Pete, yeah. Pete was saying earlier that you know if you if you have a listen to his first episode then you can hear the cranes bugling in the background not, not that not that episode oh, not that's that episode sorry no, 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 that's no. a forthcoming episode that's a forthcoming episode but yes <laughs> okay, well, there's, a, there's yeah, a teaser yeah. for, for yeah. episode two yeah the, the, current, the current episode i've got at the moment is with um derek gal who i work with uh who i've worked quite a bit on waterfall and beaver restoration um and you know, he's been a very much a key part of uh, proposing beavers as a species to bring back to the uk for a long time now and it's only in the last 10 years, obviously, things are really getting um, together. And he's like, finally, people are actually doing something about it. Um, and actually, in terms of, you know, everyone has their sort of inspirations within conservation. And, you know, I've got my role models from Gerald Durrell, um, who's my absolute hero in terms of who I take from. And then there's the personal people I know, like my, uh, my auntie Barbara and, um, you know, Chapman Oak and Martin Noble and New Forest have been exemplary mentors. But in terms of you know, working within conservation, I think Derek's been exemplary as someone who can you know, see the ideas and to be ambitious and really sort of go from there. Mm. And yeah, so if you listen to the podcast, you'll be able to sort of hopefully get a sense of you know, just what he's trying to do for wildlife in the UK and why I find that inspiring. Ben, what about you? Why, why have you gone down the podcast route? The number one reason, if I'm completely honest, is that 
it was a great way of going out and being nosy on other farms. <laughs> <laughs> There's always that thing of looking over the hedge and always wanting to know. No, no, no. But it's, uh, it, was, it, it, it was largely um, genuinely that, that I, I wanted to reach out and actually go out and meet the most, you know, there are some incredible people mm. um, out there in the countryside doing the most incredible things. And I'd, I'd spoken to some of them sort of here and there and, um, and it sort of got me thinking, there are some brilliant stories here and, mm. and, and the, these people have great lives and they, they're telling from what for me is one of the best stories, which is the story of, of food production, the story of the countryside in, in the UK. Um, but there was sort of a gap, and it wasn't really being done in in that way. Mm. Um, there are some there are some excellent some other excellent farming podcasts out there. Um, I must give a quick plug for Will Evans' Rock and Roll Farming. That's really really good, um, and he's way ahead of me in terms of the number of episodes that he's done. <laughs> but where where can people listen to yours? Uh, mine, uh, the Meet the Farmers is available on ThinkingCountry.com. Right. Uh, my website, and it's also available on iTunes. It's actually just over a year old now, which I find incredible. Um, there's been 10 episodes uh, so far. And the, the, the idea behind it really is that farming is an incredibly diverse area. Um, and I wanted to highlight stories and individual farmers um, right the way from um, someone with a few cows. Um, uh, still, still, they're all running businesses um, through to massive dairy farms, the big estates, um, and, and also dealing with lots of different farming issues. Um, but largely, I wanted to tell their stories um, and, and, and introduce farmers as people um, and actually just look, at, yeah, just look at the realities of we all have struggles and looking at the struggles of day-to-day -day life, uh, hopes and fears for the future, and those farming conversations that if you speak to any farmer he will talk about farming he or she i should say will talk about farming for for for, yeah, for for as long as you possibly have but generally we're talking amongst ourselves and i wanted to begin to lift that out and it's part mm. of the things I'm, I'm trying to do on the blog on my blog is really sort of look at both conservation and farming issues but also rub wider sustainability and rural issues as well mm -hmm. and and food issues mm. and to hopefully and this is again a challenge that we all have is lifting that conversation into people who might not necessarily hear about uh, though have those kinds of conversations it's a big struggle um, but it's about for me it's about looking at other areas that if you can connect areas together um, then you might start to just suggest people sort of think about different things and, and yeah in different ways yeah I think for me um, so there's a lot of self-interest in doing these podcasts partly because they're just amazing conversations yeah. and even if anyone really else are. listens to them I'm a massive fan of this podcast yeah, yeah so. I get a lot from the conversations themselves mm. secondly I'm speaking to people who I know and who inspire me or who, oh, who, well, yeah, <laughs> who I've never met before, but again, who inspire me. And I'm hoping that I can, you know, kind of steal with pride some of the things that they've done that have made them successful. Um, but then beyond the kind of self-interest, I think that there are amazing stories, but also partly that um, the conversation is a really important art, you know, as, as you will have tomorrow mm -hmm. at the farming event, for example, mm -hmm. for discussing issues, coming to agreement, finding common ground, 
that I think it's important to I won't say I won't say that is getting lost um, but that I think is threatened by things like social media and I think it's important to keep alive through things like podcasts mm. um, because it provides um, because it provides a forum for you know exploring exploring d- difficult issues and yeah coming to agreements around them um, and so I think conversation is yeah is a really important element of podcasting and that's why I try and <laughs> sorry I'm just, I'm, I'm just opening another beer the world's most subtle beer with no cream by Miss Vinny or that yeah not so subtle maybe we'll keep that in and just leave that as a kind of honest podcast moment I might as well do mine then. Yep. So, yeah okay sorry, everyone, everyone. everyone's opening their new beers <laughs> right I'll pick up where I left off so I, th- I think that um, uh, I think that podcasting is important because it provides that space for a long conversation and I think that both of you kind of work with quite a short format which is around 15 to 20 minutes Um, whereas I go for a slightly longer format which is around an hour to an hour and a half Um, but all of those are a lot longer than some of the sound bites that you get on radio or on television Mm. which are 30 seconds or two minutes and I listen to a lot of podcasts myself as well and um, a lot of those podcasts use that long format, that conversational format to really Mm. effectively explore different issues. I do find it interesting how podcasting has become a very in thing recently. I was just going to say... people listen to podcasts now. It's amazing about people my age saying, oh, I've listened to podcasts, and that podcast, and that podcast, and like, I I didn't know they were all available. Like, where where are these things coming from? Mm. Well, I think, amazing. uh, you know, whilst... um, Whilst sitting in front of the TV, it's perhaps declining a little bit yeah. as mm. things like Netflix and you know Amazon TV and whatever take over. Um, there's lots of evidence that actually radio is withstanding all these changes pretty well, and I think podcasting is a bit of a spin-off from obviously a spin-off from traditional radio, and is also for some reason doing well. And I think it's linked to this idea of conversation and of storytelling and of mm. I suppose what I'm really doing from from all these podcasts is trying to absorb the wisdom of others yes. yeah. so it's a lot about wisdom as well I think it really comes down to the absolute base of who we are as humans you know it's we were telling stories when we were in caves yeah. on. and there's a there's a great song by well one of not my favorite artists um Neil Hanf Divine Comedy called The Lost Art of Conversation and there's that lyric there's a terrific Neolithic tribe in the Pacific They've got no cars, no um, something, no money, no ambitions, just some pigs and some chickens, and the lost art of conversation. Mm. Yeah. And it's all about the whole thing. Yeah. In our modern life, we've kind of sort of lost that sense of conversation and creativity. And actually, before we even started recording the podcast, Matt, I told you about how I think in our sort of millennial, Generation X, whatever you want to call it, age of quick texting and quick email and all the rest of it, we've lost a lot of that creativity for when you know, there were long distances where we wouldn't see each other, wouldn't hear from each other. And like you look at my parents' old love letters and when my mum was in Leeds and my dad was in Southampton and you know they wouldn't see each other for months. And the amount of creativity and heartfulness and thought that went into these letters because you know you never know when you're going to see them next. It's just incredible. And I, I, sometimes I do wonder if you'd see that from my, you know, a lot of my generation nowadays where we can just sort of send a quick text in, a, in one sentence. Well, I think it's interesting that there's that one thing that nature and that conversation have in common... Mm. is that um, disconnection from both those things, withdraw- withdrawal from nature and withdrawal from conversation into things like text messages and social media, um, more screen time, 
both of those are quite harmful to our physical and our mental health. Mm. And spending more time actually with other people, talking with them face to face, and spending more time in the natural world are both you know, quite restorative ways of tackling those problems. And podcasts about the natural world bring both of those elements together, which I think is quite neat. Mm. And which in a sense feeds into um, the revival of nature writing nowadays. Why has Mm. that suddenly become such a huge thing again in the last 10 years or so? Um, And I think that, again, it's it's almost like a subconscious urge to reconnect that desire to be part of the natural world and to understand it and Mm. really look at the other side of it. Um... I think you know I've done I do a bit of whimsical nature writing myself when I can, uh, and sometimes it is difficult to balance trying to describe a nature in a way that's understandable, relatable to people outside that situation, between outright anthropomorphizing it. And there's been a criticism of nature writing as being like the the inner city um, gentleman going out and striding on the lane and sort of declaring everything he sees as wondrous and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, so I think there is a way to do it, but I think there's, the demand is you know phenomenal right now. Uh, and I, you know, well done nature writing um, at the moment is going for an incredible revival. Yeah. And if there is some hope in our age of um, Facebook memes and uh, quick texts, then I think nature writing might be it. And it is, a, it's an incredibly diverse genre, I think, that is, as well. Completely, yeah. Um, and that's largely what the current project of the AHRC is, is showing as well. Mm. It's the AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Mm. Um, are running a project at the moment to find Britain's favourite nature book, in essence, mm. uh, by any British nature writer um, or a nature book set in Britain. Mm. Um, and there is, it has a rich heritage, but you're completely right, I think, in the last 10 years, um, I suppose since Robert McFarlane wrote yeah. The Wild Places, about 10, like, yeah. 10, 10 year anniversary yeah. this year. Um, that sort of period yeah. it's really really taken off I think it's, yeah, yeah. it's really yeah, it's, it's a brilliant yeah. brilliant thing well, yeah. we're going to come on to books in a bit but um, one of the things that I wanted to cover was some stuff that had happened this week so we've I think we've each picked kind of an item each um, maybe let's maybe let's start with last weekend's um, Blue Planet episode which Oh. Well, I don't know if I should confess this, but I haven't yet got round to watching. But can't th- believe that. Thankfully, know, you both cretin. of you oh, have. You've both been good researchers for this podcast, so maybe why don't, <laughs> why don't you two talk about it and I'll, I'll listen. Mm. Well, I mean, watching it, I've, I mean, I've seen many documentaries in my life, Dave Atter in particular, and it's always been hugely inspiring. Um, you know, a level of awe that's unprecedented than anything else. But of that first episode of Blue Planet, I was in tears about two thirds of it with just how awe-inspiring it was, how beautiful the story mm. was. And I talked earlier about how my love for nature comes from the fact that I think it's the closest thing we have to magic. And I think of all the documentaries I've seen, this was the episode that really exemplified that. You know, the, the rays and the, and the uh, phosphorescent um, bacteria, for example, yeah. was key. Uh, and the, the sheer beauty of that was just so incredibly, incredibly powerful. And the only thing I really hope is that the action, or the, you know, the, no, the, um, the viewership of Blue Planet 2 about is then galvanised. About 10 million. Yeah. It beats Strictly more galvanized. and... Yeah. I know, ph- phenomenal yeah. fact. Yeah. And imagine if you could galvanise those people into just taking a little bit more action, a little bit more awareness. That's, that's the wonder of these documentaries. Is like, you know, how could higher politicians watch this and not want to create far more marine protected areas, for example? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I really just want to hope for and what I'm sure Sir David would want from it as well yeah I think it's going to be the really important thing for this series I mean I think the Natural History Unit have done it again 
Um, they've done what they've done, what they do best, and that is they have created. I mean, we've only seen one episode so far, but they have created a series that is visually stunning. Um, and I hope, and I think we saw the remnants of this in the first episode. There is a little bit more of the conservation message mm. coming through, a little tiny bit more yeah. um, than, say, um, in Planet Earth, for example. I've got, I mean, I've, mm. having, not, having not watched it, I feel like one of the biggest environmental issues at the moment that I think is going to have some longevity for the next few years as well, whilst it's understood better and then dealt with, is plastics. Mm. And I feel, yeah, obviously, definitely. that's yeah. particularly relevant to the was, marine environment. Yeah. Mm. I was going to come on to that next, actually, because certainly a lot of what I've seen on social media and in the press about related to the programme is there has been a lot of attention on plastics. Mm. And I think if we keep watching, I think that will become a big thing. Yeah. And I think that might be one of those moments, potentially. Mm. I, hope you, I hope you're right. Mm. Because every Attenborough series and things like Spring Watch and Autumn Watch get significant viewerships and that's down to the talent of producers like Stephen Moss and presenters like David Attenborough but how you know how do you guys Mm. think that translates into political action because you know it's been well I mean for for years if not decades we've had Mm. amazing viewerships of documentaries like Blue Planet Mm. Um, but what do we do to capitalise on that and turn it into action that delivers Mm. benefits for wildlife well, I think there's certainly a lot more being done in terms of making a part of feature of the programme. People often criticise the last series of Planet Earth, Planet Earth 2, as being far too focused on the awe-inspiring and not about the real issues, without remembering the very last episode actually dealt with about people on this planet and how it isn't um, a pristine wilderness. Uh, and I think it is something that is going to take more to the thread as it's been discussed. You know, It's the people within the circles who make these documentaries who are talking about it. Um, and I think... Yeah, you know, the old argument of old people will just switch off. Just you know, I think it's getting too important now for it not to become something that will be covered. Um, I think one of the best proposals I've heard was turning the ten-minute sequence, which is still the case in Blue Planet Two, uh, of the filmmakers showing how they did it, turn it into a story about one of the animals featured, one of the habitats featured, and a conservation story. Mm. Um, I think that'd be one small step, but one really key thing to do. But I think that action is starting to take place now. Um, because people are criticising the fact there is uh, a disnification to an extent in these documentaries um, and I think people are starting to take notice yeah and certainly uh, the the risk of it being too Hollywood I think is always there mm. um, and I think that's a really um, astute point that I mean the the making of haven't always been there they haven't always been part of the blue chips um, but so I think it's it's an element that does engage people. I think people do like to know how these things have been made. But uh, I think you're right again in that it's almost too good an opportunity to miss. And there's the question of, yeah, is it is it the place of the BBC to do that? Is it is it the place of the NHU to do that? I would argue yes, but then we would all be speaking from, from that sort of same viewpoint of being, yeah. of, of being that way inclined. Mm. Um, but is it, it's that question of, isn't it, yeah, educate, inform um, Mm. and entertain are we too far down the route of entertain it's striking that that ideal balance definitely Um, I mean I I don't remember about six years ago now I think Um, it was the half hour before spring watch Um, there was a Chris Packing documentary called The Truth About Conservation Mm. and he covered I think it was farmland 
um, green and then you know wider woodland etc and it was a really critical critical look at how we do conservation in the UK and why it's failing but it was so so non-advertised the BBC pretended it wasn't there they were stuck at the front of Spring Watch as a, as a lip service and it didn't advertise it, it did nothing because almost certainly would have thought well this has put people off so I guess unless you want to do a big docu-film investigations or blackfish style thing it's very difficult to get an entirely conservation-led, what is key, sadly key here, depressing thing made. You've got to have a balance, uh, and I think if you are going to do an entirely conservation-led project, you've got to bring in the conservation optimism side to it as well. Yeah. It's going to make, get made, unfortunately, because at the end of the day, you want to preach the non-converted, uh, and non-converted will switch off if you just give them more doom and gloom. Yeah. yeah. So my homework and your homework is to go and watch the first episode if you haven't seen it. And just whilst we're on TV and Chris Packham, that's probably quite a big discussion right now if we want it to be, but I'd really recommend the Chris Packham documentary yes. on Living with Asperger's. Yeah, that because I've got it recorded, but I haven't seen it yet. It's fantastic it's and got brilliant. lots yeah. of critical acclaim um, and lots of kind of positive praise from my friends and my networks on social media. And I think it's just... Um, yeah, without spending the next hour on it, which I think is perfectly possible, um, was a really important look at living with, well, living with Asperger's, um, but also uh, at tackling kind of mental health issues. And Chris talks about um, contemplating suicide in the documentary. And I think it just opens up in a really powerful um, emotive and honest way that you can really relate to some really important issues that, you know, all of society, but, you know, the conservation sector is part of that, need to need to engage in. So mm. alongside Blue Planet, I think that's probably been one of the best um, kind of conservation pieces of uh, television that I've seen uh, in the past, yeah, in the past few months, or if not longer. Um, so um, I was listening yesterday to BBC Radio 4's Inside Science, and they were talking about... Um, whale and dolphin communities and their brain size and the levels of socialization and culture that they have which made me um think that it was even worse that i haven't watched blue planet yet and the other thing that they were talking about was an item that they also covered the week before which was this study that was released about a week ago that showed that uh in germany on nature reserves so on land which is well managed for wildlife there has been a, and Ben's going to correct me on the figures here because he's got them written down on his notes. Um, there's been prepared. a 75% decline in insects, in insects biomass, which means the weight of insects, in the last 20 or 30 years or something like that. Ben can give us the exact numbers. But this, this uh, study has kind of sparked a lot of media interest. It's been kind of dubbed Insectageddon, um, obviously because insects play such a crucial role in pollination and in other what are termed ecosystem services, and the decline was much, much higher than anyone had predicted. Obviously, we know that insects have dropped in numbers, but I don't think anyone was expecting the results from this long-term study to reveal such a stark decline. And it links to a, a book that's been written by the environmental journalist and author Michael McCarthy that's sitting on my mm. coffee table at the moment. And Radio 4 also interviewed Michael McCarthy. And this book yeah. is called Top The Moth Snowstorm. And that alludes to the fact that when Michael McCarthy was 
younger in the 50s, 60s or whatever, several decades ago. Even when I was young, actually, in the 80s and the 90s, I remember this, that if you drove down country roads with your car headlights on or you left the bathroom window on at night, you would get this kind of bombardment of moths and other insects flying towards the light. Whereas now, just 20 or 30 years later, that doesn't happen. Um, And that's not only a sad loss in kind of intrinsic terms, in the sense that it's a spectacle that we can no longer witness in the British countryside, unless you're really into your moth trapping and you, you know, open up your moth trap the next morning. But also it's worrying in terms of what that means for our wider countryside, for other species and for humans as well. Um, so I think I'd be interested in both of your reflections on, on that, because I think it's a news story that, you know, few people fail to, fail to avoid. Um, and Ben, I think you've got the actual statistics there as yeah, well. Yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think this is a fascinating story and, and one that I think will really be seen as a watershed mm. um, moving forward. Um, so, I mean, it was, it was conducted by... We're told in the press that, that it, was, it was amateur-led. I mean, this, this has been running for 27 years and there have been various academics from across Europe involved as well. And this underlines as well, like we should say, this, the importance of what's called citizen science too. Oh, hugely so. Mm. No, definitely. You know, in, in these these kinds of studies, um, it's it's very important that 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 we can all engage, um, and that, that there is no data really, as long as it is scientifically rig- rigorous, um, that is not worth taking on. Um, so it was, it was twenty seven years, um, and it was undertaken with uh, sixty three uh, nature protection areas, so nature reserves in essence, um, and the results are really clear. So I mean, there was. Overall, on average, there was a sort of seventy-five percent decline. But this is broken into there's a seasonal decline of seventy-six percent, and then a midsummer decline of eighty-two percent. But one of the things I thought was really interesting, actually, which wasn't picked up quite as much, was that the day after NABU, who were the German Nature and Biodiversity Conservation Union, they published a study on the bird life and the sort of it's very different. It's it's difficult to draw the draw the correlation. Um, this was looking at twelve over twelve years, and they noted a decline that were twelve point seven million fewer breeding birds in Germany. So that's mm-hmm. a fifteen percent decline. And it was just an interesting correlation between the two, um, but certainly the one thing that we cannot do, and the study makes this very clear, is that we can't draw compa- We can't draw conclusions as to what the reasoning is. We can yeah. all speculate. I'm sure that mm. we all have in our minds various reasons for why it might happen, but we're not entirely sure yet what the reasons <clears> are, which I think is very important at this stage in terms of not playing the blame game. Um, mm. Well, it's, when it comes on to you know, say playing the blame game, as soon as you start pointing fingers saying you're doing that, blah, blah, how are you going to get on board any potential partners for a conservation project if you are accuse them of that? So you're right, it's a very, very sensitive thing to do. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's essentially, yeah, I, I find it terrifying. I, I really do. Um, because, you know, I, I want one day to have children, but what kind of world am I going to bring them into if this decline continues at such a rate? You know, insects are the baseline of our pollination. You take out insects, the amount of food you've lost in your supermarket shelves is phenomenal. And that's just the effect on one species, us. You know, almost quite a selfish effect from that point of view. What about the wonderful world is nature and wildlife and essentially the the groundwork of life on this planet as a whole if uh, if the insects stop disappearing so yeah 
I think it really was an absolute watershed. And, and you know, even, that's obviously one part of Europe. Um, and obviously, you know, we do, you know, we do think it's related to the intensity of pesticides and the rest of it. And we do need to work on what the like factors might be, whether it's certain products we're using, whether it's certain applications, certain management strategies. Um, but certainly three years ago, I was out in Transylvania doing some field work, um, which is a country that's only, at the time, had only been in the EU for about two years, and was only just beginning to bring intensifying practices. But the area we were surveying was essentially run under a medieval farming system. And I've never seen such a abundance of insects and by count other forms of life, birds, animals, reptiles, amphibians, than anywhere else in Europe. Literally every me- step you took through the meadows was like a firecracker of, mm. of, of grasshoppers and crickets. Mm. Um, you know, a lamppost shaded, um, lit onto a bit of tent at night and you could barely see the tent, it was so covered in moths. So obviously, you know, I think, you know, the agricultural practices and changing that has been the massive effect and I think pesticides has been a significant part of that. Um, dealing with it and, and will be after a very delicate process, but you know, I think there are some key clues right there as to where it's come from. So, I'd be interested in your view on this, Ben, in particular, coming from a farming background. Um, there, as as Pete said, the finger was kind of quite quickly by some people pointed straight at pesticides and at farming practices and. George Monbiot wrote an article, I can't remember if it was before this study came out or after it, I think it was actually before it, but where he said, he wrote that he feels that while the threat of climate change is as big as it's ever been, overfishing and intensive farming are actually bigger threats than climate change at the moment to biodiversity, to wildlife. Um, And on Radio 4 they had a a kind of discussion about, um, well, you know, we... We don't know for certain what the cause is, but then again, at the rate that these declines are happening, if we wait another five years or ten years to be certain about what the causes are, it will be too late. So what what's the best way to go about trying to tackle some of the potential causes without doing that blaming and without that finger pointing? Wow, that's a that's a question. And if you could solve yeah. that, then uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> when I set out, yeah, I set out quite yeah, a few years ago now to this sort of this is my life sort of that's you pretty much summarised there my my life question, <laughs> um, and that's that's one of the things I'm I'm trying to figure out. Mm. Um, it's going to take it's probably get it's going to be too late. It's going to be de- mm. de- decades to get yeah. to. Uh, my goodness, I don't have the answers, but what I can say is that um, I like to keep my sort of to the ground in terms of what people are saying um, and there is a there are many many different narratives going on there are many different stories that are being told there are many different stats that are being bandied about as well in terms of the correlation between overall pesticide use and it depends what products are being used declining versus um, the decline in in uh, um, invertebrates uh, populations and I think yeah we do we do have to be careful in terms of if you look at for example the one that is certainly been very apparent um, if you've been looking at Twitter in recent days uh, with uh, the no-till min-till strip-till community um, that's in essence farmers that use a certain cultivator um, which disturbs the soil as little as possible Mm -hmm. Um, so we're looking at 
and again we probably won't talk about soils today that's sort of my my pet subject um, but it's for me it's the number one conservation issue in terms of the soil, soil biota and, and soil conditions soil life um, but it is it, it's incredibly complex i think that's that's I'm, I'm taking a very long time to say that's it um i, just, I i'm i'm gonna say i don't know what the answer is at the moment mm. we I have think, yeah the key is going to be working together unity on that multiple people it's this you know it's not it's not luke skywalker luke skywalker destroying the death star or frodo destroying the run ring by yourself you know it is you know a team effort a group thing and involving all parties mm. because as you say when we start fingering blame and uh, putting us and them, you're not going to get any work, and it's just going to sort of carry on this sort of downward spiral. Yeah. But let's say the complex thing is reaching that. Okay, let's work together on this. Yeah. How yeah. are you going to do that? I mean, take take neonics, neonicotinoids, uh, which certainly the last few years has been in and out of the news. Um, there's because three... of their connections to the decline in bees, right? Yeah. Partly. Yeah, yeah. So, so here here we're looking specifically at pollinators. Hun- the honeybee um, has been, yeah, Apis Apis has been, uh, been, been the sort of focus there. But there are three key chemicals that certainly the European Union has been looking at, the European Commission has been looking at, and that's imidacloprid, clothanidin, and thalamothoxin. Um, I'm glad you said those. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> practicing, I see. Yeah. 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 Um, but there we've got the debate that they're applied as a seed treatment. Um, so in essence, rather than spraying with a whole host of um, chemicals that have previously been banned, uh, where we would have drift issues, and drift is still an issue in many parts of the world. So sorry, for a novice, that means spraying onto the crop once it's grown, exactly. whereas the chemicals you previously mentioned are seed treatments, which means treating the seed before yep. it yep. germinates. So it's applied di- exactly, it's right. applied directly to the seed. Um, however... There are studies that have come up, and we're still we're still very very early on the science. Hence why you have uh, such disagreements. Yeah. Um, Dave Goulson, uh, Sussex University, in twenty fifteen, they published a very interesting study, uh, which looked at the fact that uh, these um, these treatments are still water soluble. So you're still seeing the effects within. Say you have a margin with grass, grass and, and flowers, um, the effect of the chemical will be, uh, will be found within the margin, which the pollinators are then going to the margins. And so there's, there, is, there, are, there are so many underlying issues there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, just, I, I, I don't know. I think, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm far too junior in, in my career to actually sort of uh, begin to come up with answers but well it's, I think it's... I think what's clear is that no one necessarily has the concrete answers mm. and that you know as with Silent Spring and Rachel Carson back in the 70s mm. there's stuff that we don't necessarily understand very well and impacts that we might be having that we haven't fully got our heads around um, and that it's not necessarily possible to 100% point the finger but that we definitely need to be taking action because if we do another 10 year study to find out what is definitely the cause, then yeah, it'll yeah. be too late. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing, the thing, the main thing that shocked me with the German study was this is the situation <clears throat> in nature reserves. Mm. So, my God, what's the situation in yeah. the rest of the rest mm. of the well, landscape? It sort of exemplifies the failing of nature reserves now as conservation policy. When they came out as a you know a novel idea, they were great. You know the fact you could just have somewhere for wildlife, 
But we do know now that we do now know that you know nature doesn't work on parks. You know, it needs these sort of landscapes there. And mm. I think if anything, it shows that nature reserves are subject to the the sea around it. Yeah, which in dare I say in this country kind of we are really. becoming better at we are getting we are, better yes, at landscape yes, scale but yeah. it's, it, it has taken time yeah okay. I think we'll get into that yeah um, Pete mentioned Luke Skywalker which means that I must give a very <laughs> brief plug for a forthcoming podcast with my friend Carolyn Thompson who is undertaking a new research project on the recently discovered Skywalker Gibbon in Southeast Asia, in Myanmar. So uh, have a look out for that forthcoming episode. Um, But I want to move us on to another issue where, um, as with farming and with pesticides, it's important that conservationists learn to work with other communities. This week, um, the RSPB published its latest bird crime report. So the 2017 report that was published just a few days ago looks at crimes committed against birds in the calendar year 2016 and it showed that there were 81 instances of bird crime mostly against raptors birds of prey Um, but that despite these 81 uh, recorded incidences of persecution shooting poisoning um, there were as as in many years zero persecutions Um, and because i work for the rspb in my day job, I'm going to stick mostly to the RSPB line here. I'm going to leave the, uh, the I suppose, the discussion slightly more up to Pete and Ben. But um, the RSPB is worried that this recorded or reported incidence of 81 uh, bird crimes is just the tip of the iceberg. And that a lot of this stuff is happening on upland grouse moors, particularly in North Yorkshire. Um, and that a species of bird called the hen harrier, alongside other birds of prey, is at particular risk, and that's because while there is enough habitat in England for 300 breeding pairs of hen harrier, there are only two or three successful breeding pairs, and that's a species of bird that is particularly suffering from these incidences of persecution. Well, I think as someone who has you know conservation conflicts, which um, in a p- opposition to a wildlife-human conflict, which is a direct interaction between a species of animal and people who are on the land or whichever stakeholders involved. Conservation conflict is between people and people. Um, I think that's probably the key most one in the UK at the moment, bar the badger coal. And it has become incredibly toxic um, to discuss it. Even if you come in from as neutral a point as possible, it's very difficult to share your view without having your finger pointed out from one side of the argument as being a traitor to one or the other. Um, it's an incredibly polarised argument. It's very difficult to weave around because, you know, it's essentially, you know, there has been scientifically proven that um, a sustainable grouse moor with a, you know, a good surplus bag for, a, you know, a big amount of shoot money is not sustainable with a large population of hen harriers on it, despite being a protected species. So you already need to have a black hole there. And the best we can do is try and have some, you know, this clear, straight dialogue and do the best we can but has been made very, very difficult by polarisation on either parties, uh, names of whom I'm not going to name right now, but if you keep up the debate, you would probably able to know anyway. But one thing that has struck me as a very, you know, a positive baby step forward, at least, within the news that's come out this week in the Burge Crime Report, is the fact that the British Association of Shooting and Conservation, BASC, have openly come out and said, yep, we've got a problem, we've got members who are actively killing raptors, and this needs to stop now. And before, um, bodies like Basque and other uh, shooting bodies were essentially 
saying that yes, we condemn it, but there's not really as big a problem as um, R2B or whichever body was making that problem to be, and let's just sort of, you know, leave it by the wayside, essentially. But this is one of the first open um, cases of just saying, right, there is a problem and we need to solve it now, which I think is a really positive step forward to having this dialogue and actually working to some way to resolve it. Um, because, yeah, it has become so toxic again anywhere. It's so, so difficult. But at the end of the day, you know, these are protected species that are being killed illegally and we need to stop it now. Uh, the way we do it, yeah, that's where, you know, you start coming to some very sort of risky places depending on what you say. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Ben. Hen harriers, peregrine falcons, buzzards, red kites, all our raptors are incredible birds that are part of our heritage in this country. And yeah, and I know yeah, I speak as a soft southerner, but I have visited grass moors. Um, and I know the way that these communities value them. I know that the I'm actually I'm a believer in the future of the grass moors um, in the, this country. I think they bring great benefits for local communities and certainly a lot for of money into the local community. They bring jobs, they sustain mm. it, and I think it's very important that we don't they we don't tie together the decline of raptors. And the grass moors full stop. Completely, yeah. I think that's that's a very important correlation to make. Um, we're talking about we're talking about a culture, mm. a culture of fear in many ways. Yeah. Um, and again, if we talk about the gamekeepers, these gamekeepers who, again, if it is gamekeepers um, who are undertaking these acts, and yeah. We, there, there is so little information available there must be a certain amount of pressure mm. um, being being wielded mm. um, of course you've got to take into account the fact that these grass moors are also last reservoirs for as I mentioned earlier the curlew for example yeah. which as a breeding bird in Britain is declining phenomenally and only seems to be on the up in these managed grass moors so yeah. there is certainly a place in wider conservation as well um and I think a lot of the people who are openly aggressive of grass moors into at least bear that in mind to an extent as well. Yeah. There yeah, is some space for mixed use in the uplands. Yeah. Mm. But at the same time, I think the main thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge that there is a problem here. Yes. It's something yeah. that we've been dilly-dying about the, about the issue for several years now. I mean, it has been getting into years. Yeah. Mm. And it's... Where is the action? The government have mm. even acknowledged that it's a priority, that raptor persecution is a priority mm. uh, for mm. them to take account of. And yet, where is the action? And so, yeah. from a sort of independent person's point of view, I, I applaud the RSPB sort of suggestion. Um, that, I mean, I'm, I'm of the opinion I, I'm not a great fan of regulation, generally because I think we are, mm. the countryside is heavily regulated mm. and I think that's tied up with many other things but I think on this particular issue I think why not give it a go um, and as uh, as the RSPB have said um, people who aren't doing anything wrong have nothing to fear this is yeah. the thing from the RSPB is calling for one better enforcement of the existing law and two for licensing of grouse yeah. ones right yeah mm -hmm. no, completely mm. um, but it is it's it's a very emotive issue um, mm. And it comes down to every 
so many issues in the countryside is it's about sides and that's when yeah. when you mentioned basque mm. um and and rspb and all these organizations people tend to have a very strong opinion for or against them either yeah. way because of a certain view that they're seen to put forward mm. i think it's much better that we have we know we have a common problem mm. and i think we need to get to we're actually at the stage now where we need to accept that problem and we need to actually start to try things out yeah to start to uh to t- start to move against them yeah now, the key thing is to detoxify basically because as soon as you do start making a anything that's sort of vaguely middle ground side to middle ground you know there's still calling outs from one side of the party that's not good enough or you're betraying or anything like that and we just need to move up beyond that and stop just to stop this bickering you know it, it really you know i you know i i essentially kind of got a point on twitter now where if i see anything that i want to share about rats persecution i almost have to sort of think twice of whether i am showing even too much of a slight on one side or the other well, even, that's even how, in that's talk, how difficult it's become. Even in talking about it this evening and including it in this podcast episode, mm. I feel slightly like I'm walking on eggshells a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, which kind of yeah. is an indication that an issue has got too, as you say, too toxic and needs, you know, mm. needs something doing to it because you know people are slightly afraid to get involved in it and to talk about it yeah, anymore, yeah, which is yeah. not a healthy, healthy thing. And as we were saying before about the power of podcasts, conversation and being able to be open and talk about things is so powerful for finding solutions and moving forward and just for building consensus and common ground and trust mm. that feeling too scared to talk about an issue is not is mm. not helpful. Definitely. Okay. Um, maybe let's move us on to perhaps the last item um, that I wanted to talk about, which is what each of us is currently reading at the moment. Um, mm. Who wants to kick off on this? I'm I'm going to be greedy in a minute and probably take take three or four <laughs> items rather than just one single book but um ben do you want to start maybe yeah i've, well, I've, I've in terms of if we're talking about we've literally started reading um i've on the first few pages of a book called strands uh, by gene sprackland um, and in essence it's an exploration of an experience on a beach uh, for a 12-month period through the seasons up in the northwest of england and I'm I'm excited to to get through. It. I'm by by my very nature. I'm very into coastal books, <laughs> and very into books nature books about the coastal and 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 land books generally about the coastal environment. So I'm looking forward to getting into that. Uh, linked into that, uh, I find the thing I find exciting about nature writing is that it. I think Pete, you said earlier on that mm. it, it it it's this balance between fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. And it's that mm. it sort of ties different lines and you can find yourself dipping in and out um, depending mm. on where you are within the narrative. So I'm also uh, reading a book uh, by Robert Duck called This Shrinking Land, which is looking at the issue of erosion, another coastal issue. I'm in a very coastal mode at the moment. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't, I don't just read... I don't just, just read... Nice books. Books. I've, I've also uh, uh, just read quite an old book by, uh, by Stephen Fry. Mm. Uh, called Making History, which I quite enjoyed. Um, but uh, in terms of my uh, sort of hardcore nature books that, that have really influenced me, I've been thinking about this this last week, uh, probably with the Arts and Humanities Research Council project in mind. And I think certainly uh, 
H's of a Hawk has to be that I'm looking at it on your <laughs> coffee table right uh, now. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but I've just watched the new Helen MacDonald Ooh, BBC. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. that. BBC yeah, program world. that she's just done, which is H's of a Hawk, the next chapter, which is an excellent TV program. And now I'm going back to to read her book, which I bought recently, but haven't yet started. Yeah, and then other things I've read recently, a, a wonderful little book, um, a game which is quite... Yeah, now I think I'm 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 a big big uh big reader of books that have sort of personal connections to me, which I suppose we're we're all yeah. like that in a certain yeah. way, but a uh, wonderful book based on the North North Kent, uh, area of North Kent, uh, Kent Marshes, which has sort of similarities but differences with the Essex Marshes, but by Carol Donaldson, um, called On the Marshes, uh, which uh, I I really really enjoyed. So Strands and This Shrinking Land. You said you're at the start of Strands. This Shrinking Land. Sorry, have you finished that or you've just started? Again, it? about I always have about five or six books on the go. <laughs> yeah, I'm similar. <laughs> it's, it's, it's 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 constant. So I'm, I'm about halfway through. Is there uh, is there one that you've finished recently that you've really enjoyed? Uh, my most recent book uh, to finish. Was it was actually it wasn't the first time reading it was it was a second time reading, of John Baker's The Peregrine, mm-hmm. um, which, oh, I'm I'm a big big lover of McFarlane books, and he in turn is a big lover of mm. of of J A Baker and it's it's the book of my my landscape, mm. um, the Essex Marsh and he is his language is just beautiful in so many ways mm. and yeah it's lilting it's lyrical it's it captures the essence of the place so well and yet i love the way the way that he is so frank in the way that essex people are so frank <laughs> um and yeah one of the ways that he describes essex is it's <clears throat> just the curve of the earth it's a rawness of winter fields um and I love that certainly being out on the seawall with vast expanses of lowland marsh, salt marsh, just stretching as far as you can possibly see. The cool of the curlew, the lapwing, if you're slightly further inland on the, mm. on the, on mm. the marsh, um, you might see a marsh harrier zipping across, uh, zipping across the water. It, it's water, it's salt marsh, it's, it's big skies. Um, and for, pe- for the peregrine, for me, um, it's that relationship and obsession with the natural world and a particular aspect of nature that Baker just gets for me. And it was a real, I, I, I absolutely adore that book and I will probably read it many more times in my life and still mm-hmm. never wholly, wholly put myself into him. But for Baker, becoming the animal, there's this idea of, yeah. of becoming mm-hmm. animal. Which comes yeah, from poets yeah. like Keats, yeah. for example. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you so. I forget the name of the concept off yeah. the top of my head now. Yeah. But, yes. but here, here is Baker, yeah, um, the yeah, who is who is living mm. living this very normal life, but he goes through this 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 obsession with this bird, and this garnering this relationship with with mm. with his landscape, and he puts himself into the landscape, and he puts himself in the mindset and the being of that animal. Yeah. Um, and the other animals around um, mm. and it's yeah it, it, it's a book that is becoming very special to me but I think that's it's because yeah I'm becoming even more embedded within my place and mm. embedded within Essex has become very important to me I feel like mm. maybe there's a there's an element there of you know as I say that that concept of becoming the 
subject that you're writing about, particularly when it's a subject in nature, a flower or an insect or a bird or something, comes from romantic poets like Keats. Mm. Um, And I certainly feel like there's an element of revival right now, not just of nature writing generally, but specifically of that kind of awe, that idea of the sublime, of that almost fear of nature's enormity and how spectacular nature is. This idea of the sublime was very much something that romantic poets like Wordsworth and Coleridge and Keats developed. And I feel like that that kind of sense of sublime, that sense of how spectacular nature is, is something that some nature writers in recent decades have revived. Yeah. No, it sounds no. like J.A. Baker, who mm. I've read a little bit of, but not as much as you, and others are are following that same same pattern. I think so. But I mean, one of the other the on the other on the flip side of nature writing, you have again one of another favorite book of mine that I've read in the past year is uh, Rob Cohen's um, Common Ground, um, mm. which is looking at very specific places, looking at these places on the edge on in the edgelands. Um, in the most recent issue of BBC Wildlife magazine. Um, there was a very good article looking at nature writing as a genre, um, and again he was uh, that was named in this this idea of the edge land of urban landscape as well as being an inherent part of nature writing. Um, I think is it is very important, and it's this idea of placed, place sensed, and place based uh, writing, but also species based writing and and connection with actually putting yourself in a place and, and within within different contexts. So what about you, Pete? Mm. What have you been reading recently? I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at focusing on reading one book at the moment. Um, unless I'm on holiday, I, I sort of drift between um, you know, books and little bits and pieces when I can. Um, but there's sort of two on the go. Um, so one is, yeah, sort of a, another new nature writing of a classical genre, essentially, uh, which is The Otter by Simon Cooper. Um, which is actually based on an account of uh, an otter he regularly saw on his stretch of the river test, which again has a sense of place to me because growing up in Romsey, a tiny little market town on the test, um, you can feel the landscape, the, you know, the, the, both the gentleness yet also almost the specificity of the, the chalk rivers that all pummels all the way, all the way down to Southampton Water uh, and the, the, the wild spirit of the otters are in that. So I think in a in a landscape where we've eradicated the bear, the wolf, and the lynx, the otter is essentially our last apex predator on the land, and it has a sense of wildness that very few other animals sort of still hold. You know, if a, um, if an otter appears on the scene, you know everything disappears. They don't <laughs> want to hang around when the otter's there. It is you know a predator. It is stark wild nature, and yet it lives right alongside our farming landscape, our fishing landscape. In the case of the test, and. I say I've only about halfway through it, but you know Simon Cooper does do an amazing job of capturing you know being the beast. He writes it from the otter's perspective, and obviously we 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 can never quite understand what the otter is going to um, perceive. You know we can only do best you know our guesswork, and the same way we can only guess what um, people many years ago were thinking and the rest of it. And we, when as a historian might do or as an artist might perceive, we're essentially doing the same for nature. Um, but it's still a more wonderful, magical for that, and I think it's you know it's a fantastic read. Um, and as a mammal person as well, any little bit of writing where you can at least try and sort of see the world from that perspective, the natural enigma, is just incredible. Uh, and the other book, sort of slightly more formal, is and it's slightly more niche actually as well. Uh, it's a very large volume, 
um, for what you might be surprised by the title, which is uh, History of Cornish Birding. Hmm. Um, so obviously coming from um, Falmouth, uh, living in Falmouth for four years where I was at Exeter Pembroke Campus. Um, but even before then, I was regularly um, visiting Cornwall at least sort of three times annually because I had family there. So I'm a very deep attachment to Cornwall as a place. And this is a wonderful book that actually entitles, well, not just birding, but the sort of history of birds as a whole in the county from as far as records began up to the present day. So I'm currently on the, somewhere in the late 19th century, I think, where, you know, birding is really starting to take form. But I, I say one of the most interesting parts of that book was going to really early back um, and some of the accounts of the Middle Ages. And the authors are saying that, you know, there's very few definitive accounts of birds they have from that time. But the two birds that featured most regularly in the records that survived from the Middle Ages are the chuff, which, you know, being the Cornish emblematic bird, you might yeah. expect. Yeah. But then you've got to take into account here as well. It's a shifting baseline. This time, the chuff was common all the way across the cliffs of Dover. It was on the Isle of Wight. It was all the way up around the UK. But it was still perceived as a Cornish bird. So it was held very much in local regard there. So the chuff was uh, very well recorded and um, spoke about and spoke highly of. Um, but the other bird, which nowadays would be a bit of a surprise if you know the Cornish coastline, is the puffin. Because if you, go, if you go to Cornwall wow. nowadays, you will not see any puffin colonies on the mainland. No. But at this point in time, puffins were so numerous that they were used as rent. They were paid as currency. <laughs> you literally, like, there's records. And Presumably what's... dead, not alive. De- dead, dead puffins, yeah. <laughs> and literally, you, could, if you, you pay your rent to the, the, um, the laird at Launceston Castle for you know, your um, rent, say, that year. And imagine all these people with those sheds full of dead puffins say, Marjorie, you got a rent for this year? Oh, I'd love to get for the puffins. Oh, I've got too many dead puffins. We've spent too much rent this year. So, I, don't know, I don't know why so the corn should turn northern all of a sudden. I do apologise. What, what, um, what was the use of a dead puffin? Rent. Um, no, no, no. But oh, well. then what, what was its utility? If you were well, in receipt of a dead puffin. Oh, oh well, it was certainly good food. Good food. It would be salty. So for eating? Be, yeah, for salty, but right. certainly very fatty. Um... And, and there are still there are still places in the world today where they still eat puffins. Well, still right? still eat puffins and still eat sea. I mean, well, even seabirds. There's um, the Isles somewhere up north where they, still, they collect gannets on an annual harvest, right. aren't they? Um, but you know, puffins obviously then got the point where today, you know, you, you've got a growing colony in London now thanks to uh, rat control efforts. But that's about the closest you're going to get. You know, the big colonies in Tindagel all along the west coast, but absolutely gone nowadays. And to look into that, you've got to think about the overfishing in Cornwall, um, the pilchard trade, which was once a, a lifeline for coastal communities in Cornwall into, up until the 19th century, just vanished um, by the time we got to the 1900s. So as soon as those pilchards, those small f- uh, fry stopped disappearing, um, there's very little for the puffins to eat. And what puffins you have left in the colonies of the cliffs are going to then get eaten by the local poor, starving villagers. Because obviously, you know, poverty would have been a very huge thing in Cornwall then, as it is you know, actually sadly now in many places. Um, but I think the, the puffin case study is this exemplar of much of our shifting baseline syndrome towards wildlife in this country uh, and I'm not just talking about the big stuff like the wolves and lynx and the wild boar and beavers and what have you but stuff in the last couple of centuries that has just sort of vanished and we have no perspective of you know things like cereal bundings that were so common in the south coast things like black grouse were in the new forest mm-hmm. pine martins were here in um, here in Leicestershire yeah. North Hampshire uh, only 100, 150 years ago. There's a huge amount of thinking, and we still focus a lot on the last half of the 20th century when we come to our conservation baseline. Mm-hmm. But we've really got to think bigger. Because if we stick to, stick to this shifting baseline, if we stick to 
indeed the site-based thinking of nature conservation in the UK and start thinking as we shrink populations of species and habitats um, further and further and we start thinking, oh, it's got to be conserved there. What are we going to be left with when it's gone? It shouldn't have been there in the first place. Mm. So I think that's a really important thing to take in mind. And what nature writing does is give us access to stuff that is no longer reality. Completely. But yeah. was at one point. Yeah. It's that meld between the real world and, mm. well, not quite fiction, but history. Perhaps. Yeah. And we can still hear those farmland birds in the accounts of many, like you know, Gilbert White, for example. He was writing in the 1700s. Um, the landscape of his cell in Hampshire would have been a very, very different place and certainly much more alive in wildlife. Yeah. Um, and yeah in terms of inspiration to writing I think I've already mentioned in the podcast but Gerald Durrell was the exemplar in I think you know, it's, very, very, it's very good nature writing but I think a lot of it is very much confined to naturalists and nature people as a whole but what Jerry did was bring nature writing to the masses yeah. and he did it through humour yeah. and beautiful writing mm. there, I don't know if you've ever read his um, the love letter he wrote to um, Lee Durrell his second wife it's in his biography, but it's the most heartbreaking, wonderful, beautiful juxtaposition of both romantic writing and nature writing in one piece. And yet at the same time, this is a guy that gets off on belly laughs about the antics of his family and poor food. <laughs> and I think that's, that's what we need to sort of try and get back. And it's something that um, I've been trying to do over the past uh, year or two of actually being um, very slowly working on a book, looking at my own year of my life between just before I left university um, and a life of someone who is a naturalist who's, who at the time was 18 years old mm. and trying to balance that awkward life of an 18 year old with someone who is mad about wildlife <laughs> yeah. and not necessarily, you know, and doing that with all the embarrassment and humour and all the rest of it that you, you, your friends and family around you provides but within the beauty of the nature that frames it and, mm. you know, it's probably going to be a slow burner um, but I think reaching reach to the masses with things that they can understand and bring the nature into that on a whole is really a, a very untapped market, and I think it's really something we need to look at as well. Mm. Well, I want to I want to just quickly mention a couple of things that I've read or um, am reading at the moment, or I'm about to read. So, um, I've I've read recently um, Mindfulness in the Natural World and the Art of Mindful Bird Watching, both by Claire Thompson, who works for BirdLife International. Both of which they're they're reasonably similar books in terms of what they cover, but they're they're both really, I suppose, gentle, well-considered explorations of the connection between, um, I suppose, mental well-being and physical well-being and spending time outdoors and taking time to appreciate it, which I think is important for conservationists and for naturalists, but also for people more widely. And they're written in a very, very accessible way for people who aren't necessarily you know, bird watchers or conservationists or specialists as we are. Um, and I'm hoping to have a conversation for this podcast with Claire Thompson in, in the coming weeks. Um, a book which I reread, I sort of reread quite quickly last week um, in preparation for another conversation, but which I've read cover to cover in the past was Mother of God by Paul mm-hmm. Rosalie. It's on my list. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that is possibly my favourite conservation book ever. Maybe alongside Sand County Almanac by um, Audrey oh, Leopold, definitely. which is right up there, but that's that's a longer conversation. But Mother of God by Paul Rosalie, I would strongly recommend. Paul, um, who I recorded a podcast, we- podcast last week with, which you can listen to. Um, runs his own lodge in the Peruvian Amazon 
um, and at the age of, I don't know, something crazy, like 18 or 19, started going out to the Amazon. He's only just turning 30 or is still in his late 20s and has already spent most of the last decade living in the Peruvian Amazon, exploring uncharted bits of it, discovering floating forest habitat, which no one had ever come across before, wrestling giant anacondas. <laughs> um, and he documents this incredible story in Mother of God, um, but also talks at length about the conservation threats facing that bit of the Peruvian Amazon and how he draws inspiration from other conservationists and explorers from decades and centuries gone by and um, learns lessons from them in order to, well, I suppose, preserve this small part of it, um, which he does with, uh, with friends and with colleagues. And I'm probably not doing the book justice, but it when I read it for the first time it was one of the most inspiring conservation stories I've ever read and it really kind of rekindled a fire um, that has been burning within me since a very young age like the two of you for for saving the environment um, and I would strongly recommend it to anyone who's interested in jungles and jaguars but also in in nature conservation um I'm about halfway through Meadowland by John Lewis Stemple, um, which is a really good book. It's just about one single field on his farm in Herefordshire, which is very close to where I grew up. Mm. Um, it's quite different from somewhere like the Essex coast. It's it's a lot more kind of rural and farmed landscape. Um, it's not as dynamic as somewhere like the Essex and, well, the rest of the East Anglian coast. It's a lot more steady. Um, but... Lewis Stemple's writing reminds me quite a lot of Seamus Heaney yeah, um, by focusing just on one field and on the changes in it and its wildlife for an entire year he's really able to dig deep into what happens with those creatures and with that habitat and in the same way that Heaney writes in his poems about you know using his pen to dig through the soil you feel that John Lewis Stemple is using his writing to really dig deep into not only uh, the lives of the animals and the wildlife that live around him, but also into the history of that bit of Herefordshire and his ancestors and into the kind of archaeological and cultural history of the soil and the land where he lives and where people and animals have lived side by side for decades and centuries gone by. And like I say, I'm only about halfway through that book, but um, that's far enough to know that I would strongly recommend it. Um, and then I've got a few books coming up that I want to read. Um, we've already mentioned Michael McCarthy's Moth Snowstorm that's sitting on my table that um, comes recommended by quite a number of people. H's Hawk by Helen MacDonald was very critically acclaimed a couple of years ago. I've just watched the documentary that she's done for the BBC. Um, and the book that's sitting on the top of the pile is called Life in the Valley of Death by Dr. Alan Rabinovitz from Panthera, um, who was dubbed by Time magazine as the Indiana Jones of conservation. And I'm having a conversation with him for this podcast in just a few days' time. So once I've read that book and recorded that conversation, you'll be able to hear a lot more about it. No pressure then. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> um, I think that's about it. That's definitely enough book recommendations from me. Um, 
and that's everything I've got that Christmas sorted you've got Christmas yeah. sorted I think we've all got Christmas <laughs> sorted from each other is there anything else that's worth mentioning chaps before we wrap up hashtag now for nature hashtag now for nature <laughs> yeah so um, of course um, me and Ben and until very recently Matt were all uh, part of the Focus on Nature committee uh, and one of our big campaigns that we're kickstarting now is the now for nature campaign and it is basically a way of showcasing the young naturalists and conservationists in the UK who are doing their bit for nature right now uh, and making, our di- making a difference for conservation within what's a very, very much a growing world within a youth movement. Yeah, and I think Andreas, who's also part of the Focus on Nature Committee, would never forgive us if we didn't. Of course. Oh, didn't yeah, mention yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> right. There you go, Andreas. We're sorted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay, let's wrap it up there. Thanks very much, guys. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for angry very much.